Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Joseph Stella. With Audrey Lewis, my first guest, Stephanie Height, is the co-curator of Joseph Stella Visionary Nature, a survey of the American modernists' nature-based artworks at Atlanta's High Museum of Art. While Stella is best known today for his future-informed studies of urbanity, who doesn't love his paintings of the Brooklyn Bridge, Lewis and Height's exhibition reveals him to be every bit as much as interested in remaking America's century-long Emersonian landscape and nature traditions as his precisionist colleagues were. The exhibition features over 100 paintings and works on paper. It's on view through May 21st. A fine catalog was published by The High and Delmonico Books. Amazon and IndieBound offer it for about 50 bucks, and of course, we'll have a link on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, Celia Alvarez Munoz at the Museum of Contemporary Art, San Diego. But first, Stephanie Height, after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston is proud to announce the opening of the new galleries for Art of the Islamic Worlds. The galleries display the entire MFAH collection of Islamic art, enhanced by the Hussein Afshar collection, an exquisite selection of Persian masterworks. See historic paintings, ceramics, precious metalware, finely woven silk fabrics, and carpets. Learn more at mfah.org slash islamicworlds. On view through July 16th, 2023 at the Getty Center, the bold new exhibition Barbara T. Smith, The Way to Be, explores concepts that strike at the core of human nature, including sexuality, technology, and death. Since the 1960s, Smith has been at the forefront of artistic movements in California. Her work has taken various forms, including painting, drawing, installation, video, performance, and artists' books, and often involves her own body as a vehicle for her art. This autobiographical exhibition is Smith's first major museum show and explores the artist's first 50 years, which were marked by dramatic upheavals in her personal life, as well as the development of her most pioneering works, including her Xerox art and radical early performances. Getty also published Smith's memoir to accompany the show, and the exhibition includes an audio tour narrated by the artist. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. Now open at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago, Dwayne Linklater, My Mother's Side, Interrogating the construct and culture of museums, their conventions, and their historical exclusion of indigenous content, My Mother's Side features sculpture and video that focus on ancestral practices, digital translations of tribal objects held by museums, and a series of large-scale structures made with teepee poles. Get more information and plan your visit to see Dwayne Linklater, My Mother's Side at mcachicago.org. And we're back. Stephanie Height, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks so much, Tyler. Glad to be here. Joseph Stella, he was born and raised in Naples, not the one in Florida, the one in Italy. And he comes to the United States at the age of 19. Before long, and and really amazingly quickly, Walt Whitman was important to him. How did Stella come to Whitman? And what impact do you think Whitman has on his work? Yeah, Whitman was actually you know, part of, apparently a part of what he was exposed to in his, in school as a young 
Italian student. <laughs> so I, I find that really fascinating that he, as part of his early curriculum, was exposed to Whitman and, and other American writers, Edgar Allan Poe being another who really influenced him. He actually was from a small town outside of Naples by about an hour called Muro Lucano, which makes it even more unusual that he was exposed in this way. It was a tiny little medieval hill town, very isolated in many ways. And I think Whitman really opened the door to him to an exploration of nature, an appreciation of nature. And I would say that carries Whitman with him throughout his his life. I mean, it's it's always he, he's always present as a voice. I think that for American audiences, Stella's industry pictures often come up first, particularly the extremely famous Brooklyn Bridge pictures. Maybe we should start by talking about Stella's interest in nature and kind of how he manifested his interest in nature, and then and then we'll get to the industrial stuff. Yeah, I think the show has the potential to be a discovery for many people who might be familiar with Stella's work on the Brooklyn Bridge and other kind of icons of American modernity. But nature was really the theme that he carries throughout his career, even before he's working on nature-specific subjects. It just infuses his work. I I spent a little bit of time looking closely at some of his iconic early works, like the Brooklyn Bridge, like actually his Coney Island pictures. And you can't help but see elements of nature infused in, in some of those. There's a great work in particular in the Metz collection, which is anecdotally called the Madonna of Coney Island. And if you look closely, you see trees everywhere, <laughs> which last I checked, you know, weren't really present in the theme park. So it, it's a subject that really is always there. And I think it just has a moment you know, around, you know, the the late 19 teens where he embraces it more deliberately and shifts to it almost, wouldn't say exclusively, he always does return to his Brooklyn Bridge themes because that's what he's known for. But on his own, if if just given his own license to to produce, he's looking at nature. There's also a watercolor in the show from the Heckscher on Long Island that is known as Study for Coney Island. And it shows only nature. (laughs) (laughs) It's fascinating. Yes, this was brought to my attention by Carly Roselbacher at the Heckscher. And, you know, she said, you need to pay attention to this. He's he is working very deliberately on on these on these trees. And the presence of nature is, is really quite obvious and evident and underscored by that study, which then becomes the Met's Grand Tondo painting. There are also investigations of nature that feel very, I don't know, Central European almost. There's an etching in your collection of a tree trunk. And then there is this, I mean, I don't know if I would call it trompe l'oeil, but I think I would, painting of bark. What do they suggest about the importance of of observation or, or kind of firsthand experience of nature that maybe some of the later, more... I don't know, sensorial works don't. Yeah, no, I'm so glad you brought up those two examples of his early work and his early investigations with nature. We don't have specific dates. There's still uh, many unknowns about Stella's work, and one of them is when he made so many of his pictures. And these, the suite of uh, engravings that he makes 
he explores figures and also this this wonderful tree that you're describing. And we believe it was made around the time he returns to Italy for the first time after having been uh, in New York all those years, um, around 1909, 1910. But this particular etching just carries the the, the weight almost of an old master drawing. It, it, they're just, it, it's so detailed and so elegantly rendered with all the nooks and crannies. And I immediately responded to this particular composition because it, it really, for me, it signaled a, a theme that evolves starting with this tree perhaps and, and carrying out throughout his life and, and certainly threading through one of his most famous nature-based painting, uh, Tree of My Life, where trees in, in particular become a way, a, a foil for for his own self. I mean, he he's looking at them as expressions of, uh, they've got great personality, I think, is what he's capturing in so many of his pictures that depict trees. And, you know, he might abandon this, this highly articulated style later, very soon, actually, after he, he makes these, these pictures. He, he moves more towards abstraction. Of course, he, he flirts with futurism in his work. But, you know, this, this tree is, is really one of his first efforts to, to try and understand, I guess, the wonder of nature by going deep into detail, right, and to looking very closely at, at something that, you know, to many, they pass by every day and it might seem banal. And that's, I think, what he brings brings to us through nature. And then, of course, the little uh, watercolor that you mentioned was a discovery for me. I've never seen it before. I don't think it's been published, you know, in, in previous exhibitions. And it's just, it, it's a fragment. It's a little piece of bark that he turns into this sort of wondrous exploration of, of texture and surface. And it's one of the earliest works in the show. It's from, I believe, 1900. It's dated by Stella himself. And it, again, it shows us how fascinated he was with these details of nature, with the wonder of even the most humble subject. Today, we think of industry and nature as being in opposition. Did Stella, I mean, because his pictures of nature are first detailed and then exuberant in the most colorful, loud, shouty way imaginable quite often. So how does he, he get from nature to industry? And does he think of those as being oppositional interests? As I was saying, I, th I think he, nature is always present. And he does describe himself as swinging on this pendulum, uh, going between these two spheres, these two worlds, this, this nature, world of nature, and this discovery he makes of America and this new subject that he really starts to explore around 1913 and, and carries it forward of, of industry and, and of modernity, the, just the, the dazzle of what was new in America by contrast to, you know, what he had experienced, you know, growing up and even in the, his first years in America and before he goes back to Europe, you know, New York changes so much in his absence and he comes back and is just wowed by it. But I think in part, I would argue that some of his, I guess, the awe that he experiences, you know, in the city by the, you know, from, from the energy of the city is very much connected to the same kind of awe that he experiences in, in nature. And I think, you know, I think it's hard to, in, in, in my own life, it's hard for me to separate different aspects of, of my own experiences. I mean, they all kind of mingle and, and mesh together. And I think that's certainly what was happening 
with Stella, you see evidence of nature emerging in some of his very deliberate industrial works, right? You see smoke covering coal mines. You see mist and and swirls of sort of fiery <laughs> elements engulfing a storage tank <laughs> for for oil. I mean, it's it's it. There is no clear crisp line as much as we'd like to imagine there could have been. There wasn't, and I think I hope this show gestures a little at that. Now, of course, the focus of of our project was really just the nature works, but we did include a few great examples just to show how integrated I think his thinking and his his experience was um, between these two spheres. One of the ways you you do that integration is by talking about, I don't know if the word relationship is right, but it's close, the relationship between Stella's trees and his interest in skyscrapers. How did that work? Yeah, I mean, trees being rooted firmly to the ground and soaring high up into into the sky. I mean, there's it seems almost evident now, you know, that he points it out how these skyscrapers of nature, if you will, you know, would have inspired him in the same way that a man-made structure might. I, I think one of the things I got out of the catalog is that Stella built not all of his compositions, but many of them really vertically, you know, with really strong verticals. And sometimes that's an individual central element, and sometimes it runs all the way across eh, almost the picture plane. And it seemed to me, as I was reading the catalog, that at minimum, formally, he thinks of utilizing them in the same way. You're right. He has this vertical thrust that for many of his works really is is present. And once you see it, it's almost hard to unsee. <laughs> you see it in in so many of his his larger presentations. Not so much in his his drawings or more modest expressions, but his major works share this quality. And this is something that was pointed out, I think even in his own time, um, and certainly by scholars, you know, before me. But it's hard to to understate how central this <laughs> this this vertical structure seemed to be for for his work. And all the way through to the end of his career, when he makes his really his last great painting, he, of course, paints an amazing Brooklyn Bridge, the one that's at the Boston MFA. And around the same time, he creates this wonderful painting in Barbados, the title of which is escaping. I think it's called Moon, Moon Over Barbados. It's not in the show, unfortunately. It's in a private collection in in Pittsburgh and was not able to join join the project. But it was also just oriented around this this sort of central palm tree that that lifts you know out of like a like a skyscraper almost sort of thrusts itself out of out of the ground with you know and you have the the sea and sky behind it. And it's it seems to me a very deliberate statement that, you know, very much like the way Tree of My Life and his very first Brooklyn Bridge in the Yale University Art Gallery collection relate to each other. I, I kind of feel this late work of nature and another Brooklyn Bridge also are sort of like bookends to to his career and keeps with that that theme, this, this sort of central orienting vertical thrust as, you know, all along the way. There's a whole section on Barbados in the show. Stella was there from, I think, the end of 37 into 38. I would bet that you've spent a lot of time thinking about that etching we talked about earlier and a Barbados painting in the show called Banyan Tree. Yes, that is perhaps one of my favorite 
works in the show, just for its simplicity and for all that it just represents, the sort of the, the, the grounded, solid, rooted tree that, you know, withstands. We did a little research into this tree. And in fact, it's thought to not be a banyan tree, but rather a baobao tree. I think what's so um, fascinating about the tree is that you have these really strong horizontal branches that are thrusting off to the edge of the composition. It's leafless. So you don't really have a sense for, you know, what the whole tree looks like. And it's a fragment in, in the way that, you know, the, the early etching was uh, in the way that that fragment of the bark was. And um, it's just a wonderful, wonderful expression of his idiosyncratic approach to representation. I mean, it's very, very daring, I think. He doesn't feel compelled to tell the whole story. You see in that painting, which we'll have on manpodcast.com, the familiar problem many artists had in the 19th and early 20th century, and that is how do you represent the enormity of an enormous tree? And and I think what you just described is exactly how Stella proposes a solution, which is also a solution that artists like Charles Leander Weed or Carlton Watkins or Edward Moybridge had going back to the 1860s. I mean, it's a challenge that persists. <laughs> I want to talk through some of the ways in which Stella explores his interest in nature, because I think one of the really neat things about this show is how many different ways of presenting nature you're able to show. One of them is what we might call uh, botanical illustration. And, and I guess I don't only mean drawings and paintings of botanical subjects, but also works on paper that literally include botany on them. <laughs> So uh, collages with leaves and things like that. How is botanical, I don't know, investigation or illustration important to Stella? I think perhaps first and foremost, his excursions to the New York Botanical Gardens were a retreat, right? I don't know if he sought, you know, set out to, you know, to that space as a, a location for inspiration for future paintings. Maybe he did, but I think he truly found enjoyment sitting in the warm climates of the conservatory and and finding fantastical in some cases specimen to to render and then of course it it does become very deliberate for him and you know he's he is using the very traditional techniques and and difficult techniques of of silver point. I mean, there's no making mistakes in silver point. And, and there's also the effort involved in preparing the paper, which he did from scratch. He didn't purchase pre-prepared paper for, you know, for these drawings. And so I think they, they appear like botanical specimen in some cases, some very refined and detailed drawings. And yeah, I don't think he set out to, to make scientific quality renderings, but they certainly show the or evidence of how much time he spent thinking about and looking and observing these these plants. And, and so that that detail is is an expression of, I think, the admiration he had for even the smallest and most missable part of, you know, a any plant and the range of plants that he that he focused on and was engaged with were just really extraordinary. A great point that's made in the catalog too by um, by Carly is that these small environments that are created outside of the natural world in these contained botanical garden enclosures were very creative. I mean, you have, you know, you can trans 
transport yourself from the desert to a tropical climate within minutes. I think that surely influenced him. I mean, he was he was grabbing from all sorts of parts of, of the, the botanical gardens and, and creating these these really fantastical paintings on his own uh, that, that combined plants that never in the natural world could have coexisted. So I think his time there, you know, certainly wasn't focused on on being true to true to the scientific elements of things as, as much as just exploring how these these forms and shapes and colors can can complement each other, coexist and and create new new worlds in, in a way when when put together. I think one of the ways that manifests itself in these silver point drawings and small paintings is that instead of illustrating a botanical element like leaves or a flower, these are really muscular compositions. These are really thoughtfully composed. How do we, how does he represent the thing in a rectangle? You know, he's, he's building, not merely representing. So one of the things that I, I, I guess I was surprised by, even though <laughs> since I made my notes two weeks ago, I guess I'm not anymore. But one of the things I was really surprised by is how much nature filled Stella's I don't know if I, I should call them religious paintings or paintings related to faith and faith traditions. And so I want to ask about those. But before we get there, what is the role of religion or faith in Stella's work? I think that's it, it's a tricky question to answer in many ways, because, of course, we don't know exactly how Stella felt about religion. I mean, he was very clearly a very spiritual person, very driven by like a personal spirituality that didn't really conform to to any particular religion. And he, he does write about not really feeling connected to his, the way he was raised as, as a Catholic to the, the kinds of rules and expectations that one would have to fulfill to, to be considered strictly Catholic. But, you know, of course that, that childhood of, of his in the small mountain village in southern Italy remained with him as an influence throughout his life. And and the Catholic experiences that, that he had are certainly present. And, and so we see this, of course, expressed very, very clearly in his Madonna paintings, the one at the High Museum Purissima, and also the great the great one at Brooklyn, and the one that's in the private collection that's in the show that is also really fantastic. And I think many audiences at that time would have been a little bit stunned to see such an overt expression of, you know, something that looked truly religious. But I also think he was looking at the the figure of the Virgin, you know, outside of, you know, sort of the Catholic categories and seeing her as, oh, as a, as a figure who has, you know, generated so much in, in our imagination, in our, in our, you know, in, in the culture that he was living living in. And he saw her, I think, as, as very connected to natural sources, <laughs> to to the natural world and uh, and celebrated her in that way. And then if you think about her, the way that, you know, his Madonnas are much more like the kind of vernacular expressions that you would have experienced if you walked into a tiny church in Southern Italy. Right. Yeah. So there, there are also expressions of the folk tradition that that he was 
raised within. And, you know, if you look at some of his colleagues who are looking at American folk traditions, I think it's really quite natural for him to look at, you know, the kinds of traditions that resonated with him and his background and identity. So, you know, you would see these Madonnas carried through towns on platforms, you know, for celebrations, and they're covered with garlands of flowers and, and, and fruits and bounty. That's in many ways, what these are. These are joyous recollections of, of, you know, these these past experiences that for him represented community, they represented family and and his childhood. So there's a lot going on in, in these works. And I think they're 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 fun to engage with, you know, in our 21st century eyes <laughs> looking looking at them as as these fascinating specimen, but I, I also think they are very, they're universal in a way. They're joyous and they have a lot of connection to, I don't know, our our own investigations, maybe personal investigations into our own sense of, of, of how we relate to the spiritual world. In all of his Madonna paintings, including yours, the flowers and the fruit and the vines, the storks are, are more alive than the Madonnas, which feel very wooden, perhaps what you're referencing about the the folk tradition explains that. I, I want to also note that this kind of reference to spirituality and faith isn't only in the Madonna and and kind of related pictures. It's in work such as um, an undated pastel on paper in the show that shows a couple or three or four. It's hard to tell how many kind of dark, menacing trees underneath a a cloud and a kind of a darkened blue sky. And among the trees, there's a cross poking up over the trees. And this was extremely common in precisionist and precisionist era American work as American artists mediated between kind of an Emersonian, ecstatic, faith-driven, or informed anyway, nature tradition and, and industry. And I think we really see Stella doing that, which, which brings me to, you know, I, I always hate asking guests about things I've worked on, but I cannot resist here. Stella, as I think the show makes spectacularly clear, is very much working in a period when American art is having its third or fourth major grappling with the early to mid-19th century work of Ralph Waldo Emerson, and particularly with Emerson's landmark 1836 book, Nature. Ultimately, the precisionists led by Charles Sheeler, will find ways out of Emerson, and, and American art mostly never looks back. As an Emersonian, I, I just can't help but wonder if you found or saw any textual evidence or pictorial suggestion that Stella was engaged with Emerson and his ideas. I, I have to say absolutely, but I don't want to you know, go down the path without feeling like I, I have specific evidence to to back it up. But I find it it would be surprising to me if 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 it wasn't the case. I, I suppose. I mean, he meditates on on nature in, in a way that you know my memory of the last time I read Emerson evokes. So uh, yes, I I would actually put the question back to you, <laughs> Tyler, because I, I think you're you're the Emerson you know expert and, and and where do you see it in in the work? I mean, I think that's what's so wonderful about Stella, and I'm really excited to open the doors to you know to our audiences here, just to hear some of the reactions because I, I think what people are finding in Stella is that 
he's not dictating to you how to experience these works and how to experience nature. He's, he's sharing in, in ways, maybe a vision for nature, but there are no rules around it. And I, I think in, in some ways that, that suggests Emerson to me. I mean, we're, we're meant to be embracing of our feelings and, and our responses to nature. So with the caveat that we are, as we often do, taping weeks before the show opens, and thus I have not seen it, reading the catalog, there there's a whole bunch that jumped out at me. First of all, the relationship between the natural world and religion and faith in the Virgin Mary paintings we talked about Earlier, even in the paintings when Mary, and, and I guess really kind of all of them, Mary's in the center of the painting. She's the center thing, compositionally and otherwise. But I think we kind of lose interest in her because the flowers and the lemons and whatever else is going on. And so one of the things Stella seems to be doing is kind of creating a balance between nature and faith in a way that Emerson, and, and to be honest, my least favorite part of nature, expresses. But I think, I, I think to me, the answer... The clearest relation is in this relationship, and, and of course in the cross and the trees, and we were talking about earlier, something that all of the, almost all of the precisionists did. But the one that really jumps out at me most, particularly in the way you have included some works that are super smoky, dark, dirty, industrial, with paintings that are buoyant, bright, um, and naturey. You know, this is this is a period when um, artists in the United States are to use Wanda Korn's great phrase, you know, obsessed with not just the American thing, but what the new American thing is. And I think in this show, certainly in the catalog, and I think in the show, we see Stella finding his way out of the old American thing, which is nature, while still being interested in it, they all were, and 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 welcoming industry as the new American thing and finding ways in which industry could replace nature as a subject, as something to be, if it's not too strong a word, glorified. And I, you know, I, I think that even in like the darkest, dirtiest, smokiest, I don't know what other words fit, you know, um, dingiest painting Stella makes of industry, he's pretty excited by it. You know, when he paints, you know, you were talking about a, a pastel um, in Milwaukee earlier called um, the Quencher Night Fires that shows fires kind of smokestacks, what looks like a steel plant. And the fires are like, he's just having an absolute blast with that. He's like having like, how much more fun can an artist have inhaling God knows what? And so I, I think the place where, um, and, and so I think, I think Stella is involved in the new American thing every bit as much. I think in this show, we, she, we see Stella engaging in that mediation between the old American thing and the new American thing as much as anybody else in, 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 in the U S whether that's Hartley or Sheeler or strand or, 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 or anybody else in, in, in any other medium. And, and, and I think what, and again, I haven't seen the show yet, but I think what distinguishes Stella is that he brings more European traditions into the story and, and into that grappling. I mean, like Charles Sheeler is not painting Virgin Mary's. I mean, just imagine like you can't even begin to wrap your head around that. Right. And so we see Stella doing that. And I'm really excited to, to think about that a lot more. I think you're right. He is grappling with the new American thing and perfectly put. And Wanda Korn's book is a great place to look for for how Stella fits into, you know, into that that process. As you were talking, I'm also thinking, though, about 
you know, of course, industry and that transition from, you know, a bucolic and pastoral uh, America to an industrial one and to an urban one is, you know, one of the great transitions in the 20th century. And and he's capturing that, of course, in his, his industrial work. But I also wonder if he's embracing nature not as, you know, what he's not making Hudson River School landscapes in his nature, right? He's not really doing landscapes in, in that kind of traditional way. He's, and, and when he's, he does, they're Italian landscapes. Right. <laughs> right. So, well, and so there's this old world, new world, pardon the, the you know, sort of old, old fashioned expression of it. But, you know, for him, these spheres that I, I do argue are not as distinct, you know, as as we all might imagine, they are spheres. I mean, he he's he is associating in many ways light and brightness with this this old Arcadia, you know, that that he this nostalgia he has for for the past in a way and how he can reconcile that with his his modern existence and in, in you know really in the world's most modern city in New York. But they they do yeah they do coexist. I mean his his new american thing is is industry but it's also it has evidences of of this natural organic world that you know it's is always within him and you know frankly it's something that even if you know you live in in new york you you still experience nature and i think he he found joy in expressing that i think he he found joy in in and pointing that out to people you know, in his in his work, people didn't know what to make of his work, as as I think I mentioned earlier, and, and you know, probably wouldn't surprise a lot of people. I mean, his his Madonna imagery, in particular, you know, you know, as you said, Sheeler would never have done that. Uh, Hartley, not so much. I mean, so they were strange and hard for people to 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 grapple with. You know, nevertheless, you know, this is this was his his vision, his uh, visionary nature, if you will. <laughs> I think it it resonates now today, even if 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 he lost, he confused some of his biggest fans, you know, in his own time. I think that complication is is maybe the strength of the oeuvre and I think is maybe why, particularly in 2023, uh, at a climate change, in a climate change era, the work is, is so interesting. Stephanie Haidt, thanks very much. Thank you, Tyler. It's great talking to you. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Bridget Riley Drawings from the Artist's Studio, the most extensive exhibition dedicated exclusively to the artist's drawing practice. The exhibition covers the full range of Riley's career, from her student days in the late 1940s, through her groundbreaking black-and-white optical works of the early 1960s, to the innovative color studies she has undertaken from the late 60s to the present day. Bridget Riley Drawings from the Artist's Studio is co-organized by the Hammer Museum, the Art Institute of Chicago, and the Morgan Library and Museum. On view at the Hammer from February 4th through May 28th, 2023. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Nasher Sculpture Center presents Mark DeSuvero Steel Like Paper, an exhibition that explores the artist's six decades-long career and monumental vision. Plan your visit to see more than 30 sculptures presented alongside rarely seen drawings. Get tickets at nashersculpturecenter.org. Experience the collision and circulation of cultures through Griselda Rosas's collection of textile drawings and sculptural installations. The San Diego, Tijuana-based artist incorporates natural pigments and collage with adopted embroidery skill and inventive imagery 
to explore themes of inheritance and intergenerational knowledge. Now, through August 2023, see Rosas' first solo museum exhibition at the recently expanded Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego La Jolla campus. Plan your visit to the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego by going to mcasd.org. Welcome back. Next up, Celia Alvarez-Munoz Breaking the Binding at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego. My guest is Isabel Casso, who curated the show with Kate Green. The exhibition features over 40 of Munoz's large-scale installations, book projects, and shows how Munoz built a witty and often funny style, built from conceptualist puns, even as she styled herself an artivist who engaged issues informed by her experiences living along the U.S.-Mexico borderlands. It's on view at MCASD's La Jolla location through August 13th. A catalog is forthcoming. Isabel Casso, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, thank you for having me, Tyler. Celia Alvarez-Munoz liked to describe herself as an artivist, which is a great word that it seems to me should be in far wider currency than it is. What did she think of it as meaning? And, and how will that word be important to her career? I think that's something that she kind of came to recently, artivist, I think it being a a portmanteau in many ways. But surprisingly enough, she hasn't brought it up very much in our conversations. But I do think it gets at what her practice in many ways is about, which is using art to tell a greater story beyond herself to advocate or comment or analyze broader social issues. When she's been describing herself, at least as of, as of late, and when we were formulating the exhibition and putting together the checklist, and even as recently as writing the intro text, really thinking about herself as a, a visual and a verbal storyteller. Speaking of storytelling, and before we jump into some of the work, I think it's probably important to address a smidge of biography. The U.S.-Mexico borderlands and bicultural heritage will become important to Alvarez Munoz and, and really stay important through through her career. Why and how are, are kind of those two issues, places, I guess the borderlands are both place and issue. Yeah, why and how are they important to her? Yes, as you say, the borderlands are place, issue, headspace, everything kind of in between. And I think it presents itself to be a motivating factor for Celia in many ways, that being not only her her childhood, which was in El Paso, which is shares the border with Ciudad Juarez. And she was there, you know, in mid-century, so kind of growing up in the aftermath of the Depression. And that area kind of goes through a lot of changes. You have the formal settlement of the Kamitsal Treaty. You have a renegotiation of borderlines and a renegotiation of how that city kind of works. And so Celia often thinks about her practice stemming from growing up in El Paso, it being this place that grates against another and you have 
bilingual moments, you have bicultural moments. And even though when she left and she now lives and has been there since the 80s, Arlington, Texas, which is a Dallas suburb, still carries those border stories with her as she moves along her career, speaking to other broader issues. But the landscape of her childhood really does is informed by the borderlands and by her place on the border. Alvarez Munoz did both her undergrad work and graduate work in Texas, in El Paso and in Denton, north of DFW. Speaking of University of North Texas, Alvarez Munoz began her first significant work while she was there in grad school. It's what she called her Enlightenment series, and there are a whole bunch of examples of it in your show. What form did the series take and what did it do? Well, the Enlightenment series, at least for me, was my entry point for Celia's work. It's how I was introduced to her. And I think it's actually probably how many people who are familiar with her practice are introduced to her. Typically, Enlightenment number four and Enlightenment number eight are ones that you see in other institutional collections. So she began that in graduate school, kind of incited by her senior thesis. And it is, as she says, like a self-described period of enlightenment. Celia was a school teacher for many years, and it wasn't until her 40s that she pursued art professionally and solely. So you have this pretty distinct shift in her life, and she was already a mother of two, you know, living in Arlington, and so she was commuting an hour or so to Denton every week and was really trying to juggle all of the things that come with being an adult student with a life outside of your studies. But I do think that that really informed her. And so this Enlightenment series is composed of 10 artist books, all of which, except for the 10th one, can be shown in a, in a number of ways. And so each is kind of a portrayal or a story that's linked to the artist's childhood or coming of age in El Paso, Ciudad Juarez. And she uses kind of the, the typical conceptual art format, that being image and text, that pairing. And she really is using cryptic language and staged photography is how I think about it. And the cryptic language also that being a, a flipping often between or slipping often between Spanish and English. And she really is a player of, of languages and plays with words. So that's kind of the way that I think about this series. Well, I think you, I think you, I think you answered it. I, but maybe one way to what, maybe one way of getting even more specific after I note that she makes the enlightenment works between 1980 and 1985 but maybe one way of being even more specific, maybe you could take one of the Enlightenment works, uh, number four, for example, is in number numbers four and nine are in your collection. Four, eight, nine are in our oh, collection. Oh, four, eight, nine. And maybe detailing kind of how they work, what they do, how they achieve their address. For me, this the Enlightenment series, at least, is very foundational not only for Celia and that she is doing it at this time in graduate school. And she continues on, as, as you noted, she ends the series in 85. So she has graduated from 
her master's program at that point and has continued doing the series. But in these various enlightenments, she's taking these stories. And yeah, so if if we think about number four, she's kind of confronting barriers to language acquisition here. And she's wrestling kind of with the various verbs of to lay, to lie, and how when you're being taught English as a second language, that's very confusing. I mean, even as a native English speaker, I find those things confusing having gone through master's programs, I still, you know, have to Google it probably every single time. And she pairs those. So there's kind of three registers to that specific enlightenment. And it's composed of five separate pages that are, at least in this presentation, they're framed. And she typically has them in a cross formation, if if you can imagine that. So three in the middle, one on top and one on bottom. And she has them paired with staged images of eggs. So the subtitle of this work is Which Came First, engaging that idiom of the chicken and egg situation. And and in many ways, I kind of think about this specifically in terms of, you know, pubescent awkwardness and, and sexuality, kind of this reproductive visual metaphor that's happening here paired with fumbling over language and verbs. And then she also has her son wrote wrote those little lined portion of, of that work that's on lined paper and then glued on. So Enlightenment number four is probably her most recognized work period. And I do think it's a it's a great way to kind of think about her work and it's a great entry point. And a lot of people do focus often on the language part of this, the language acquisition and having that, you know, those the issues of, of second learning English as a second language, Spanish being her first and how that bilingualism, you know, impacts your studies and also the ways in which you think about words and the ways that you even phrase things. And I do think, you know, she's always thinking dually in many ways. She's thinking visual, verbal, Spanish, English, individual, and the collective. One of her strengths, at least that I've, I've observed, is her ability to take personal stories and relate them to a larger kind of collective history. And so with number four, it has these eggs in, in a line. And if you look at them as a whole, you'll see that she's slightly shifting the viewpoint. And you come to realize that this uniform line of eggs is actually a series of eggs that are all various sizes And it was just kind of a trick of the eye and viewpoints that kind of led us into these things. And I really think at this series, as much as she's toying with language and words, she's also taking advantage of viewers' belief in photography as a documentary medium and calling our attention to our capacity to misread images. So the shifting viewpoint in the stage scenes like adds to this play of perception, which she does on both a linguistic and a visual level. And in turn, this play of perception, I really see it since this is her enlightenment series. This is this moment where she has gone back to grad school. 
is a mother who's also working professionally as an artist, this so-called moment of enlightenment, this moment of radicalization that she found. And you really are seeing kind of the, the wake of the waves of feminism as they get to Texas. And she often talks about her community in Arlington. There were a few other women that were also going back to school. And so they would watch one another's kids you know, when the other had to stay late in the dark room or or what what have you, you're able to glean that once you look at them. Also, I think about this play of perception also as the artist turning retrospectively and gazing back at her own past, or whether that be her childhood or, you know, this found domesticity and and alternate way of living. I think you just raised a bunch of things we're going to talk about as we continue, including Alvarez Munoz's pairing of text with photographic images, which she does a lot throughout, and the way she punnily, you know, plays with language in a punny way. You also mentioned how while in school she's doing a lot of questioning and challenging that is related to being bicultural. And so when Alvarez Munoz was at North Texas, she presented a performance satirizing a professor. And that same performance satirizes the Texan and, of course, the broader American obsession with oil and petroleum products such as plastics, and also the bigotry within art historical disciplines and approaches, which is a heck of a range of things to bring together. So what was that performance about? And how is it literally, physically represented in the exhibition? We'll start with the, the, the content itself and kind of go from there to where we are today, which is installing a 15-foot vinyl reproduction of Mexico City with a pyramid superimposed on it and a massive, you know, nine-foot petroquadal god. And that, that'll be the first time it's been presented this way. Petroquadal being, I believe, a word of her own invention. Yes. It's a portmanteau of the English prefix for petroleum and the Nahuatl word for serpent. Like Quetzalcoatl is kind of the, the word, the feathered serpent god. So riffing off of that suffix. But as, as you said, this, this, this installation, what it comes to be, begins in 1981 and Alvarez Munoz stood before her graduate school art art history class and instead of giving you know what she was assigned which was this you know an ex- uh, a presentation she instead impersonated her her lecturer her professor i believe was married to a curator at the Kimmel Art Museum in Fort Worth who had been responsible for bringing some of the terracotta warriors to the United States. So that's kind of like the foundation it starts with. But so she gets kind of up in front of her class and styles herself after the professor, you know, with spectacles, like a hairdo, a Georgian accent. And she announces that her husband, this quote unquote curator at the Kimball Museum, had recently unearthed a pre-colonial vestige in Mexico. And she then presents this artifact that she had uncovered of a Aztec god named Petroquatl, this being the portmanteau that she makes up. And the artifact itself is this plumed, fabricated, vintage 
World War II gas respirator that she just sourced from like a local surplus store and she adorns it with feathers and some beads kind of playing into the expected presentation of, of, of such an artifact. And seven years later, she returns to that performance piece in the language she has come to be associated with, which is installation art and her combination of image and text. So this piece, Petroquadal, has many iterations, as do many of her works, which was an interesting thing when, you know, you're coming to curate and forming a checklist. You're not only deciding what work to show, but also what iteration of the work are you going to exhibit? So in previous installations, they've been like smaller, probably, I wouldn't say eight by 11, but maybe like a 24 by, you know, 40 image of the staged image of the mask on this amazing, like hot pink background. And then it is paired with an appropriated image from a Nat Geo magazine from 1980. So it would have been the year before she did that performance of they had quote unquote discovered or or found that there was a, a pyramid in the Zocalo of Mexico City. So that was superimposed on this Nat Geo aerial image of Mexico City. And it looks very, very cool. <laughs> and she she typically pairs those as a diptych. So for this presentation, we're at the, our La Jolla campus. We just reopened last April. So we have all of these fantastic new gallery spaces that have 20-foot ceilings. So we decided to go big with this one. So we have the diptych on a wall. And instead of them being the framed images, they're blown up to 15 feet and they share the wall. And she does have a story that that goes alongside this that that describes her grandmother talking about a person wearing a mask. And she asks the inevitable question of, you know, how long do they have to wear this mask? She's asking this in in 88, but unfortunately, it's unbelievably and eerily uh, poignant for today as we all don masks often, whether to keep our health in check or or otherwise. I do think it's, it's interesting how works become poignant 40 years after their creation almost. But as, as you said, even earlier, you know, the 90s are today in many ways with the conversations that we have. Including on some of the artists on view in California, we recently had on the program Amalia Mesa Baines, who has in her work, and she's a contemporary of Alvarez Munoz's, in her work, they, you know, they've both made ofrendas and they have both made it common within their practices to modify works they've made and, and to continue to modify them. And I think in Alvarez Munoz's case, that means that works on paper that are immutable, such as the Enlightenment's, are the works that institutions have tended to collect, which to be discussed in a panel conversation coming to a conference near you soon, no doubt. We talked a moment ago about how Alvarez Munoz often made work that addresses issues, and not not just issues of sight, but kind of broader cultural, political, commercial issues between Mexico and the U.S. I thought Fibra y Furia 
Exploitation is in Vogue is a good example of her work that does that. What is that work and how does it do it? Well, for this presentation, we're just presenting Fibra. So kind of what we were just talking about, there's many iterations to all of these things. She began her Fibra series. It was first produced, I believe, in 97 for the for Herba Buena in San Francisco. And it's a response to the over-sexualization of girlhood and kind of is advocating in many ways for women's work or, or, you know, female labor. And she's kind of drawing this connection of the ways the fashion industry shapes consumer identities while also distinctly relying on exploited feminized labor. So in this presentation, we do have these amazing bolts of fabric, you know, hanging from 20, 20 feet up. And in between those or interspersed between those, you see bedazzled booty shorts or or these denim shorts and like a duster dress that she had created, I believe, by the San Francisco Opera costume costume. You know, I think I read it once in an interview and and I think recently had confirmed with her since she was on site last week that she had those were all her designs and then were executed by someone who is related with the San Francisco opera. And so she has like a successful housewife dress that has an apron, you know, equipped with the various tools to be a successful homemaker. And then, you know, the installation that you asked about, which is Fibra in Furia, which he comes back to two years later, Exploitation in Vogue, centers on or is building kind of on this idea of feminized labor and their relationship to fashion industry is centered on the maquiladora workers and femicides that were happening in Juarez, Mexico. So she then kind of includes in that she has an installation with sand and discarded shoes and again, some staged photography. And like always, there's words that come along with all of these things. But for this presentation, for very, unfortunately, very literal reasons, we didn't have the space. We are presenting Fibra, which will still be fantastic in its own way. But it is an interesting moment to think about these installations in one point before they get to kind of an either a broadened one or or just take it on a different path as she moves through her practice. I wanted to wrap up with a work that I think has a little bit of everything we've discussed in it. It's a work in your collection called Lana Sube from 1988. And it's a work that is quite literally about shifting borderlands. By literally, I mean physically shifting borderlands. And it's full of doubling and punning and winking and nodding and art-making techniques maybe familiar from United States conceptualism, but also maybe Central American modes of laying down paint. Maybe you could describe the work and and tell us what successes you find within it. Well, Lana Sube, which has a pendant work, Lana Baja, both of which are in our collection, came out of, and, and I probably should have said this much earlier, but one of the precedents for having this retrospective here at MCASD is that Celia 
we've had a long relationship with Celia, not only in bringing her works into the collection, but she did have a 1991 solo exhibition here that was curated by Madeline Grinstein, who is now the director of MCA Chicago. Out of deference to Madeline, I will not point out that that was 32 years ago. (laughs) Yes, but it does make it particularly sweet that we have her here now for this retrospective. And I'll note that we are also starting just like they did with the 91 survey with El Limite, which is a massive multimedia installation work. So we're starting off the exhibition with a bright dollop of yellow and a pretty intense story to kind of unravel yourself. But to go back to the Postalis series, I say all of that to mention that those works were brought in by Madeline and were instigated by that 91 showing. So I really see the Lana Sube and Lana Baja as being part of her larger Postalis series, although they don't have that series title within them. And like we were talking about earlier, Celia uh, grew up in El Paso, quite literally only blocks away from the border. So I know it's very easy to say like a person grew up in the borderlands and that could be, you know, any number of places within a state that sits on the line. But she was very literally only like five or so blocks away from the border and could see Ciudad Juarez, you know, from from where she grew up. And so in, in 1964, there was the formal settlement of the Kamitsal dispute. It, it was a border conflict that had begun over 100 years prior when the Rio Grande shifted its course southward, basically leaving 600 acres of land between El Paso and Ciudad Juarez, which was, you know, like so many of these liminal spaces argued over for, for too long. And so in the Kennedy administration, it was formally settled. And what was once Mexican land became part of the United States. And concurrently, or consequently, there was waves of displacement and migration that followed. So in 1988, she begins this Postalis series. And I believe that that was first at the Tyler Museum of Art in in Texas. And the Postalis takes its names from these these small postcards that she had actually done a few years prior. So you do see a lot of her installations have their bones in artist books. And and then they do kind of, as the title says, break their own bindings and kind of unfurl themselves from these codex forms and kind of flutter themselves onto the wall, however you you know want to think about that. But Alvarez Munoz is, is kind of takes these postcards or this kind of like nostalgic presentation of, of houses or housing and, and blows them up and airbrushes them onto the unstretched canvases. And there's some really fantastic documentary shots of her basically having tented out her living room to do these airbrushes. She told me this great story. Her husband kind of went on a work trip for a few days and he came back and basically she had made their living room an airbrushed airbrushing tent, you know, which I just think is really funny and is also shows kind of how Celia did practice. It was in her house. You know, you have this post studio moment. She often talks also about, you know, how the car is often a studio for her, whether she was kind of taking her kids to soccer or running errands, you know, being in that 
in, in, you know, you don't have to be in a studio to come up with art, which I do think is a, a thing that she picks up from conceptualism, but the vintage postcards, the color palette, the nostalgic, you know, style is really trying to engage with that quintessential postcard nostalgia. And she pairs it with street signs and these street signs, for example, like Mesa Street intersects with Mesa Street. So, you know, you, you also being a California kid, there's so many of these street names that we that we know and that are regularly mispronounced by people. So she like literalizing the phonetic spelling of how English speakers often incorrectly pronounce Spanish vowels. So Mesa, Mesa. And you see it also the other way around. She does do signs that that offer the inverse of, you know, how certain street names sound with Spanish pronunciation. So she's bringing together, again, text and images to kind of, I wouldn't say demonstrate, but shows the ways cultural hybridity shapes a city. So it can manifest from anything from the facades of houses and the ways in which they're presented to street signs, which I think is just a great way to understand the gamut of how things are impacted by, for example, formal settlements, but also, as you know, we were talking about earlier, biculturalism, bilingualism. You see this at so many various registers in a city, in a life, anything as simple as a street sign to kind of what's, what's sitting on your porch. Love it. Isabel Casso, thanks so much. Thank you so much, Tyler. This has been fun. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.